0: Well, good morning, everyone. Good morning. good morning. My name is Kristen. If I haven't had the chance to meet you before, I'm part of the leadership team here at Novation. And today I have the privilege of teaching. Um, last Sunday, last weekend, actually, my husband Joel and I were in Sedona, Arizona, celebrating his 40th birthday. Yeah. I actually turned 40 like six months before him, so I was really excited when he joined me in the 40 Club. Uh, but we had so much fun in Sedona, and we one of the things we wanted to do while we were there was do some really beautiful hikes. We enjoy hiking. So our first day, we get up, and we head straight to this trailhead. And I did not have any water to drink before we set out on our hike. So we get to the trailhead, and there's a sign that says... Be sure each person has a minimum of one gallon of water. This trail is hot and dry. And so I look at Joel and I'm like, do we have enough water? And he's like, yeah, we'll be fine. You guys, we had a 32 ounce Nalgene bottle for the two of us. And so I immediately have like water anxiety. Like, I'm like, I am going to be so thirsty. So we start hiking, and I'm really thirsty, but I'm not drinking the water because I want to conserve the water. And we keep going, and it's really hot. It's like 8 a.m. and already almost 90 degrees. And we make it almost to the summit. I actually have a picture because it was so gorgeous. I thought I would share it with you. This is right before the summit. There was this vista that we stopped and took this picture at. But at this point, I am so thirsty, and our water is more than halfway gone. We make it the rest of the way up the summit, we turn around, we start going back down the trail, but we still have well over a mile of the trail left, and the water is totally gone. And Joel's fine, because he drank a ton of water wisely before we left, but I did not. So I am like, I've got a headache, I can't swallow, like my tongue feels really dry, and I'm praying. I'm like, Lord, can you supernaturally cause someone to leave an ice-cold bottle of water on the trail? And I'm seriously looking, you guys. Like, at one point, I told Joel, like, I am believing for water. No water. There was no water on the trail. So we finally made it back to the car. I was fine. We got to a gas station. I got a giant water bottle and chugged the whole thing. But man, not having enough water is a problem. But it's also a problem when we have too much water, right? And that's what we're going to be talking about today. We are looking at the flood narrative. We have been in this series called Longing for Eden that is kicking off the year that we are taking to work our way through the Bible, to help us understand how the Bible is this unified story, how all of the different stories within it connect to one another and ultimately point us to Jesus. And we're going to dive into that today. Um, If you are a child of the 70s or the 80s, would you be brave and raise your hand? Okay, that's a lot of us. That's a lot of us. I'm a child of the 80s, and I grew up in Sunday school. If you grew up in Sunday school as a child of the 70s or the 80s, I'm pretty sure that you are familiar with the felt board. Do you all know what I'm talking about? Yes. It was a green felt board. Well, at least mine was. And then our our Sunday school teacher had all of these felt figures. Oh, you can see right here that you would put up on the felt board while your teacher told you the Bible stories, and you guys, look at Noah's ark. Look at these happy people. We have happy Noah, we've got some happy lions, the zebras are prancing, even the rainbow looks happy, right? Now, if this is the only context you have for the flood narrative is happy Noah, who's the hero, and then a few weeks ago in our Bible reading, you read Genesis 6, 7, 8, and 9, it's like, whoa, wait a minute. That feels a little bit different, right? It causes us, you read this narrative and you kind of have to reckon with the evil of the human heart and with the reality of judgment. And that can feel kind of difficult. But that's what we're going to dive into today. We have a lot um, that we're going to be sinking our teeth into. I'm going to need you to have like your Bible school hats on with me today. But before we get started, will you just take a moment and pray with me? God, thank you for just this group of people that we together are striving to know you better, to understand the scriptures, and ultimately to just take part in the beautiful gospel and the life that you offer us, the new beginning that's available to us in you. God, as we work our way through today's message and look at the flood narrative, would you just open our minds to understand and move our hearts towards you. God, let me get out of the way and let your spirit move and do the work that you intend to do in each one of us. In your name, amen. All right, before we dive into the meat of this story, there are three foundational truths that we really need to have a solid grip on that are gonna help us understand the flood narrative. And the first one is that God is good, god is good anytime you are struggling to understand scripture or to understand the circumstances that you find yourself in or you're you're struggling through like a faith crisis check your presuppositions and make sure you're beginning from the place that you believe that god is good and then secondly we need to believe that god's judgments are just those two things are the first two foundational truths that we need to have in place In um, Psalm 145, verse 8 and 9, David is proclaiming some true things about the nature of God. It says, the Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and great in loving kindness. The Lord is good to all, and his mercies are over all his works. So God is good, his judgments are just, and thirdly, human choices are responsible for the realities that lead to judgment now, that psalm that I just read, David was actually quoting from a different place in the Old Testament. He was referring to exodus chapter thirty four verse six. Now, this verse is kind of like the John three sixteen of the Old Testament. It is the most quoted Old Testament um, scripture verse we 're going to read that and then we 're going to not stop at verse six, but we 're going to follow up with verse seven as we explore this truth that it 's human choices that lead to the realities that bring in judgment. Yahweh, the Lord, the God of compassion and mercy. I am slow to anger and filled with unfailing love and faithfulness. I lavish unfailing love to a thousand generations. I forgive iniquity, rebellion, and sin. So you can see how David was kind of referring back to this paraphrasing verse 6. But let's go on to verse 7. But I do not excuse the guilty. I lay the sins of the parents upon their children and grandchildren. The entire family is affected, even children in the 3rd and 4th generations. Now, when we read that second part, when we read verse 7, there's something in our western minds that's like, "Ooh, that doesn't feel great. That that doesn't quite feel fair." But here's the reality, none of us are isolated beings. Every decision that we make for the good or for the bad has ripple effects that affect far more people than just our individual selves. My great-great-grandparents, moved from Ireland to Illinois when my great-grandfather was a young boy. And because of that decision, my dad ended up getting married to a woman here. He moved from Illinois to Colorado, and then he had me. And I am a United States citizen because of the decision of my great-great-grandparents. Now, that's a neutral example, but the decisions that we make do not just affect us. They affect our children and our children's children and our children's children's children, right? That's what God is saying here. Sin, the, ch- the desire to do what's right in our own eyes, as Scott has been talking about the past few weeks, it has lasting effects. It doesn't just affect us. And we see that in these first chapters of Genesis from when Adam and Eve disobeyed and they took the fruit that they weren't supposed to eat from. Things begin to spiral. We see the story of Cain and Abel and later Lamech, and we just see this continued pattern of violence, of doing what is right, in our own eyes. And this was the case at the time of Noah. In Genesis 6, verse 11 and 12, it says, Now the earth was corrupt in the sight of God, and the earth was filled with violence. Who commits violence? People, right? It's people's decisions. God looked on the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way upon the earth. So as we get in, to the meat of this narrative. Remember, God is good, his judgments are just, and it is human choices that lead to the realities that require judgment. The flood was God's merciful action to restrain evil that was just ever-increasing upon the earth. God was acting to restore the goodness of his creation. Okay, we are going to jump in. This is a lot of scripture. We're not going to read all four chapters. Genesis 6, 7, 8, and 9 are where we find the flood narrative, but we'll be here all day. So we're just going to take some little excerpts, and I'm going to talk you through a couple things in between. So this is where you got to put your Bible, Bible scholar hats on, okay? Here we go. Genesis 6, 5 through 9. Then the Lord saw... That the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. The Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and he was grieved in his heart. The Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, from man to animals to creeping things and to birds of the sky. For I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. These are the records of the generations of Noah Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his time. Noah walked with God. Remember that, Noah walked with God. Now, the first thing I wanna draw your attention to is in verse six, it says that the the Lord was grieved in his heart. Judgment did not come from a violent, angry God. Judgment came from a brokenhearted God acting for the good, the ultimate good of his creation. Another thing I want you to know, in verse three, so we didn't read this, but in verse three, there's a a really interesting statement. God says, my spirit will not strive with man forever, but instead his years will be limited to 120 years. Now there's two possibilities of what this might mean. It could mean that God is putting a cap on an individual human lifespan. Now, after this point, we see lots of Bible characters who actually live beyond 120 years. So I think a more likely explanation and actually the oldest interpretation of what Genesis 6-3 means is that God was kind of starting like a countdown clock. He looked and saw the evil and the destruction and the violence and the cesspool of brokenness that the earth was becoming. And he said, I, I can't let this go on forever. Creation will destroy itself. So in 120 years, judgment is coming. And then God goes on and he tells Noah what's going to happen. He's like, there's going to be a flood. I'm going to give you some really specific instructions. You're going to build this boat. You're going to bring these animals and birds and creeping things and and it's going to happen. And then I want you to also look, well, you don't have to go there now, but go take a minute and go to your Bible and look at 2 Peter 2, 5. Peter is talking about Noah, and he calls Noah a preacher of righteousness. So we can infer that Noah spent 120 years building the ark and preaching righteousness, proclaiming the goodness of God to the people around him. And when that 120-year time clock was up, the flood was coming. We're going to pick it back up in Genesis 7, verses 13 through 18 and verse 23. On the very same day, Noah and Shem and Ham and Japheth, the sons of Noah, and Noah's wife and the three wives of his sons with them, entered the ark. They and every beast after its kind, and all the cattle after their kind, and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth after its kind, and every bird after its kind, all sorts of birds. So they went into the ark to Noah by twos of all flesh, in which was the breath of life. Those that entered, male and female of all flesh, entered as God had commanded him, and the Lord closed it behind him. Then the flood came upon the earth for forty days, and the water increased and lifted up the ark so that it rose above the earth. The water prevailed and increased greatly upon the earth, and the ark floated on the surface of the water. Thus he blotted out every living thing that was upon the face of the land, from man to animals to creeping things and to birds of the sky, and they were blotted out from the earth, and only Noah was left together with those that were with him in the ark. This is a low point. This is like, oh, only Noah and those that were left with him in the ark remained. A side note that I want to point out to you, the number 40 in verse 17, we're told that the, the rain would fall upon the earth for 40 days. That number 40 is really significant, and I want you to make a note of it. Circle it in your Bible, underline it, because you're gonna come across the number 40 throughout our reading plan that we're doing over this next year. When you come across this number, the number 40 signifies a time of testing, a trial, a time of waiting, but ultimately it signifies deliverance. We obviously see this here in the flood story. We also see this when um, Israel wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. We see this in the life of Jesus when he was led out into the wilderness and fasted for 40 days and 40 nights and then was tempted by the evil one. So it's just a great design pattern to notice, make a note of it to yourself so that the next time you come across it, you can go, oh, I have, a, I have like an idea of what that might mean. I have other examples in other parts of Scripture. In 8.1, Genesis 8. one, we we're told that God remembers Noah... And he sends a wind across the water, and the water begins to recede. We're going to pick the story back up in verse 4, chapter 8. In the seventh month, on the 17th day of the month, the ark rested upon the mountains of Arat. The water decreased steadily until the 10th month. In the 10th month, on the first day of the month, the tops of the mountains became visible. We're going to keep going. Jump down to verse 13 through 18. Now it came about in the 601st year, in the first month, on the first of the month, the water was dried up from the earth. Then Noah removed the covering of the ark and looked, and behold, the surface of the ground was dried up. In the second month, on the 27th day of the month, the earth was dry. Then God spoke to Noah, saying, Go out of the ark, you and your wife and your sons and your sons' wives with you bring out with you every living thing of all flesh that is with you, birds and animals and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, that they may breed abundantly on the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. So Noah went out and his sons and his wife and his son's wives with him. If you add all that time up, Noah and his family were in the ark for about a year. And then Noah, we're not going to go into this part, but Noah sends out a raven, and then three times he sends out a dove until finally the dove doesn't come back. He realizes that the, the earth is habitable again, and him and his family, and every, all animals with him on the ark get out of the ark. We're going to pick up the story again, Genesis 8, 20 to 22. How are you guys doing? I know this is a lot of scripture. Are you with me? Yeah. Yes? Okay, here we go. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took of every clean animal and of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. The Lord smelled the soothing aroma and the Lord said to himself, I will never again curse the ground on account of man for the intent of man's heart is evil from his youth. And I will never again destroy every living thing as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest and cold and heat and summer and winter and day and night shall not cease. This is the first of five explicit covenants that God makes. Four of them are in the Old Testament, and then we have the new covenant that's ushered in by the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And this covenant with Noah is unique in two ways. First of all, It is the only covenant that has no requirements of the other party. God just makes a commitment to his human family, and this is the second reason this is unique. It's it's not only with his human family. This is a covenant that God makes with all of creation, the animals, creation, and humans. And it's God's commitment to the goodness of his creation. This covenant is God's pledge that he will create a stable world. He will withhold, the, he will make the world stay steady so that eventually human life will flourish again and that Jesus can enter the scene. This is kind of a whisper to ultimate redemption that we're looking forward to, that one day Jesus will return and the whole earth, all of creation will be renewed and redeemed. And this is just like a little tiny glimpse of that. Now we're going to read just one last little section of scripture, just where God kind of clarifies this covenant more explicitly with Noah. This is Genesis 9, 8 to 13. Then God spoke to Noah and to his sons with him saying, now behold, I myself do establish my covenant with you and with your descendants after you and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the cattle. And every beast of the earth with you, of all that comes out of the ark, even every beast of the earth, I shall establish my covenant with you, and all flesh shall never again be cut off by water of the flood, neither shall there again be a flood to destroy the earth. God said, this is the sign of the covenant which I am making between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all successive generations. I set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be for a sign of a covenant between me and the earth. This should be such a high point. The flood is over. Noah and his family have come out of the ark into this new creation. God makes a new covenant with them. This should be amazing. But if you keep reading, I mean, Noah was on the ark a long time and he really wanted a drink is what happens. He plants a vineyard. He grows the grapes. He harvests the grapes. And then he gets totally smashed. And something sketchy, Goes on in his tent, and his youngest son is either involved in it or witnesses it. But it's it's like womp womp womp. Like what should have been this beautiful moment, ends up right back in a state of corruption. Which I think it's important for us to know. God was expecting. If you go back to um, eight, I think it's eight twenty one. Yes, God says the intent of man's heart is evil from his youth. He's stating this as he's making this covenant. God is saying that the flood, what happened in the flood is a new beginning, but only partially so. Ultimately, the new beginning that we need and that God was setting us up for is the new beginning that's on offer to us through the gospel, through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And then that's, this is where Noah's story ends. We're told after the sketchy thing with the tent, we're told that he lives another 350 years and he dies. That's the end of his story. So what I want us to do is I want to help you. The Bible is so incredibly highly designed with so much intention, with phrases and ideas that layer from one story to another in such beautiful and amazing ways that may not be obvious on a first read-through. And so what I want to do is I want to help draw out three different parallels that we see in this flood narrative that will help us understand the bigger story that leads to Jesus. The first parallel that we see is the parallel between creation and decreation. In Genesis chapter one, we have God's spirit hovering over over the waters of the deep. And then through this creative action, God separates the water so there's heavens and then there's waters below. And then God separates the water so that there's dry land that appears and the water has boundaries around where it can exist. And in Genesis 7, we see an undoing of that. In Genesis 7, the the sky above opens up and the water starts pouring out and the ground below the fountains below bubble up. And it's just like this decreation, creation where creation is collapsing back in on itself. We also see this in the breath of life, the phrase, the breath of life. We see it multiple places in Genesis, but in Genesis two verse seven, the breath of life is what God breathes into man, that animates man, gives him his spirit and his being. And then in Genesis six 17, we're told that the breath of life is going to be destroyed. Another act of de-creation. And then finally, the ark itself has so much Eden imagery in it. If you think about the garden where Adam and Eve were with God. They were in this beautiful garden surrounded by trees. They had plenty to eat. They were there with all the animals and God's spirit dwelled with them. Now look at the ark. The ark is made of trees, of gopher wood to be exact. There's plenty to eat because God instructed Noah to bring plenty of food. They're there with the animals, and the breath of life remains in the ark. The Spirit of God dwells in the little floating Eden. There's a lot of Eden imagery present in the ark. So that's the first parallels, creation and decreation, and then ultimately, recreation. The second parallel that we see is between Noah and Adam. Now, remember when we were starting out reading, I asked you to make note that the scriptures tell us that Noah walked with God. Adam also walked with God. When, if you go back to Genesis 3, when Adam and Eve have eaten of the fruit of the tree that they were not supposed to touch and they were hiding, God came in the cool of the day to do what with Adam and Eve? To walk. He came to walk with them in the garden. So both Adam and Noah are men who walk with God. Both Adam and Noah are men who were commissioned to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. We see that commission given in both the creation narrative and the flood narrative. And both Adam and Noah ultimately fail. Adam eats of the tree that he's not supposed to eat from and ends up hiding, naked, and ashamed in the garden. Noah gets drunk and does the sketchy thing in the tent and ends up naked, ashamed, and hiding in his tent. So both of these two men leave us longing for someone greater, someone who doesn't fail the test and just go after what's right in their own eyes, but instead trust God, trust God's character and is obedient even unto death. It leaves us longing for Jesus. And that brings us to the last parallel that I wanna point out is between Noah and Jesus. Now think about the two narratives, what we just read and what you know, or maybe you haven't heard the gospel yet, but I'm gonna tell you. In the flood narrative, we have Noah, a righteous man, living in a wicked age, and the floodwaters of death come, and the wicked perish, while Noah and the righteous remnant are brought through the flood waters to safety, right? They take shelter in the ark, and they're brought through to safety. Now, the story of Jesus inverts the flood narrative. In the story of Jesus, we have... Instead of the wicked perishing while the righteous is brought through to safety, we have Jesus, the one and only truly righteous one who sinks beneath the waters of death on the cross. He doesn't escape like Noah did. Noah took shelter in the ark and came through to safety. Jesus instead becomes the ark, becomes the shelter, through his death and he brings all creation through to safety through to new creation to new covenant that's amazing when we read the flood narrative with the ability to know the new testament which many many faithful people before us didn't have but we do we can see the ultimate fulfillment of the flood narrative and of the new beginning on offer in jesus that's amazing So what do we do with this? Our God is a God of new beginnings. His desire is that every one of us would experience the new beginning on offer from him. So where do we start? How do we respond? The first thing that I would say is we just need to be honest about where we're at. The reality is all of us probably have things in our life that we're struggling with. Places where sin still has a hold on us. Maybe you're not following Jesus today. Maybe you think, I just, I got to get my life together. I'll, I'll think about this Jesus thing once I just get through this or once I get out of this mess. That's not necessary. God's offer to you is to just be honest about where you're at and invite him into the mess. In Colossians 3, verse 5 through 9, Paul writes, So put to death the sinful earthly things lurking within you. Have nothing to do with sexual immorality, impurity, lust, and evil desires. Don't be greedy, for a greedy person is an idolater. Worshiping the things of this world, because of these sins, the anger of God is coming. You used to do these things when your life was still part of this world. How true is that? We used to do these things. Sometimes we still get caught up in them. But now is the time to get rid of anger, rage, malicious behavior, slander, and dirty language. Don't lie to each other, for you have stripped off your old sinful nature and all its wicked deeds. Put on your new nature and be renewed as you learn to know your creator and become like him. There's a real relief in inviting Jesus into our mess, and not just Jesus. Invite somebody else and tell somebody in your home group or in your core group where you're at, What you're struggling with, sin festers and grows in the darkness, but when you allow the light to pour in, sin loses its power. It loses its grip. So that's where we begin. The second thing that we do to respond is we believe God's promises. Sometimes it's easy when you're stuck in the mess, when sin still has its grip on you, when you've had a bad day or a bad week, to doubt what God says is true. But in 1 John 1, 8 and 9, it says, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. But listen to this. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. It's a promise. He is faithful and just. Believe his promise. In 2 Corinthians 5, 17, this is one of my favorite verses, Paul writes, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone, and behold, the new has come. That's a promise. I don't always feel like a new creation, and I'm sure you don't either. But our new creation status isn't dependent on us and what we do. It's dependent on Jesus and what he already did. We have to believe God's promises. When our family was young— we went up to Winter Park and my son Bryson was three, maybe four years old. And I had Ashlyn, who was just a little tiny baby. So my husband, Joel, wanted to take the kids on the Alpine slide. And Bryson was nervous. He was like watching a couple different people come down and he was unsure about going. And Joel was like, buddy, I will keep you safe. I will be with you and I will keep you safe. You can trust me. And I saw the resolve in Bryson's eyes, and he was like, okay, daddy, let's go. So they go up, and I'm standing at the bottom, and I can't really see. It's hard to, like, figure out who's coming down on the little sled. But Joel and Bryson come down, and they get off, and Joel's entire left side is just, like, bloody and raw. And I'm like, oh no, like Bryson was freaking out about going. And so I'm, at, I'm like, what happened? And Bryson's like, well, we tipped over. They got a little off balance and that like cement of that alpine slide will rip you up. It just like burned the flesh right off of the whole left side of Joel's body. And so I'm asking Bryson like, buddy, were you afraid? And he just looked at me and he goes, no, daddy said he'd keep me safe. And he did. And Joel and I, not kidding, like we both teared up because it was just so precious. Like his confidence and his trust in his dad. His dad told him, I'm gonna keep you safe. And so Bryson was like, cool, then I'm in. If we could have that kind of faith, when Jesus says things are gonna be true, they're gonna be true. The promises of God can be counted on. So with that childlike faith, just believe God's promises. And then lastly, Walk with Jesus day by day. I am notorious for wanting to make big, sweeping changes. I will listen to a podcast or read a book about like a new like eating plan or a new organization system or a new way to categorize your books, anything. It doesn't even matter what it is. And I'll get so excited. I'm like 100% in. And I'll tell Joel, I'll be so excited, and I'll tell Joel about it. And I'm like, babe, I am turning over a new leaf. And every time, without fail, he goes, another one? <laughs> what happened to the last leaf? Did it blow away? And I'm like, oh, I, I've moved on from that one. Like, this is a new thing. Because the thing is, big sweeping changes are kind of hard to sustain. For most of us, they're just not realistic, Now, sometimes God does convert somebody, change somebody's heart and life in such a drastic way that they are an entirely different person. That can happen. But for most of us, the journey of our faith, the journey of our new beginning is a process that just happens day by day and step by step as we faithfully walk with Jesus In Colossians 2, verse 6 and 7, Paul writes, Therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, having been firmly rooted and now being built up in him and established in your faith. How did we receive Jesus? Was it by striving and working and scrimping and holding on? No. We received Jesus by opening our hands, by submitting and releasing. And in the same way that we receive his grace through faith, we walk with him day by day into a new beginning. And that's what's on offer for all of us today. Whether you are putting your faith in Jesus for the first time today, whether you're agreeing with him and saying, I'm with you, I trust you, Jesus, I trust that your life, your death, and your resurrection has made a way for me to enter into relationship with you and to become part of your family. Maybe today's the day you're doing that for the first time. Or maybe for some of you, you've just been making choices that you know are not God's best for you. You've been distracted. You've been caught up in the things of this world. There's a new beginning waiting for you too. Today, God invites you to trust him, to just take the next right step with him. Maybe it's asking for forgiveness from somebody. Maybe it's just doing the next right thing at work. Maybe what God has for you today is a step of faith into something new. Whatever it is, don't leave without reckoning with it, without giving it over to him. I want to leave you with these words of Jesus from Matthew 11:28 through 30. Are you tired, worn out, burned out on religion? Come to me, get away with me, and you'll recover your life. I'll show you how to take a real rest. Walk with me and work with me. Watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. Keep company with me, and you'll learn to live freely and lightly. Let's pray. God, thank you for the story of the flood. Thank you for the ways that we can see our ultimate need for you, for a new beginning in you. God, wherever we are today, whatever new beginning we need to walk in, remind us of your grace. Remind us of your love for us. And thank you, Jesus, for the gospel, for the ultimate new beginning that we have in you. We love you and we praise you. In your name, amen.